0: Log Talk Radio
1: You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, October 27th, 2015, and I'm your host Ariel Taylor with my co-hosts Lavendar and Anastasia. We're glad to be back with you tonight after a wonderful gathering for our Crystal Quest in Arkansas. And one of our most popular guests is back with us tonight. Nick Redfern has just released his newest book, Men in Black, Personal Stories and Eerie Adventures, which includes a chapter about Lavendar's MIB encounter. As an investigative journalist, Nick has authored many bestsellers on paranormal subjects, UFOs, and cryptozoology, and has also appeared on major television networks and radio shows. His thorough research for each book is evident not only in the pages of the book, but also as a speaker. And we're excited to announce that Nick will be at the upcoming Pleiadian Lineup Starseed Gathering in Arkansas presenting his research on starseed topics such as Men in Black and Bloodline of the Gods, which was his last book, and he talked about that the last time he was with us on the show. So you can check out Nick's website at Nick Redfern. That's R E D F-E-R-N, Nick Redfern for F-O-R-T-E-A-N dot blogspot dot com. So that's nickredfernfortean.blogspot.com. Say that three times real fast. Okay, at the top of the show, it's the Starseed News with Anastasia, bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Vanya and Fiona for hosting the Switchboard this evening. We have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com. And special thanks go to Tammy, as always, for her dedication to our forum. You can download our show podcasts on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk radio episode page. Just look for the cloud with an arrow icon. If you'd like to support our show, just click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed Confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. And if you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you want a stage two interpretation of your solar return chart, please order it at least two or three months ahead of time to make sure you get in before your 10 hours. So, first uh, this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia as soon as I get your mic open. Okay, hey Anastasia. Good evening, everybody.
2: It is so wonderful to hear your voice arielle it I'm so glad you're all back. I've missed you, so it's great to be back in the saddle with the news. We've had a lot of action in the few weeks that we've been apart. We can't cover it all tonight, so I'll just dig in and we'll start with the most recent news that's been going on So the sun uh is very quiet, none of the sunspots currently pose any threat for strong flares and solar activity at this time as of today, remains very low. Well, there is a big asteroid that's going to be zooming past our planet on Halloween, and they say that may actually be a comet, according to NASA researchers. The roughly 1,300-foot-wide asteroid called 2015 TB145, which some astronomers have dubbed spooky, will cruise within 300,000 miles of Earth on October 31st. Now, this is just 1.3 times the average distance between our planet and the moon. Now, although this asteroid poses no threat on this pass, the flyby will mark the closest encounter with such a big space rock until August 2027, when the 2,600-foot-wide 1999 AN-10 comes within one Earth-moon distance, according to NASA. So we have a Halloween asteroid that may be a comet coming by. And in the Earth Changes category, we have had a swarm of 29 earthquakes in 24 hours near Central Oregon Volcanic Complex. Seismic stations have located an earthquake swarm near Lapine, Oregon. The region has experienced 29 earthquakes in just 24 hours, with many people pointing out the close proximity of the quakes to the area's volcanoes now in fact the recent swarm of earthquakes in central oregon is located in a volcanic hotbed with the nor- with the numerous volcanic complexes near the area of concern now all this earthquakes although this earthquake swarm is unusual the klamath county emergency manager is asking people to remain calm as there is currently no cause for concern and in fact the strongest of these 29 quakes was just 2.5 magnitude, and that occurred on Thursday, so they're quite small. And in Australia, off the Queensland coast, a 4.0 earthquake struck. It uh, happened on Friday. It was felt by people as far south as Brisbane, and no damage was reported. But Geoscience Australia says the tremor is the 13th aftershock in the area following a 5.4 magnitude quake that happened in late July. And, of course, most of us have heard about the earthquake that struck Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India just yesterday. It was a 7.5. Dozens of fatalities and hundreds of injuries have been reported following that large quake that did hit in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. There are fears that the reported death toll will rise. It's been followed by a series of aftershocks of 4.7 and 4.8, Toppling buildings, it's triggered stampedes and knocked out communication lines. In fact, a group of schoolchildren were killed by a uh, stampede following the earthquake. Now, with over 300 casualties, uh, the bulk of the injuries were reported from Pakistan, where 214 people were killed and more than 1,800 injured. So it's a tough thing over there, definitely. In San Ramon, California, there has been two small earthquakes that occurred yesterday. A magnitude, or excuse me, it happened on Monday. It was reported uh, in my article on Monday. happened on Sunday, excuse me. It was a 2.9 earthquake that struck near San Ramon, and a magnitude, magnitude 2.6 hit the same area on Monday. So there was one Sunday and one Monday and that is according to the USGS. Now, what's significant about this is that this area has seen more than 200 small quakes in recent weeks, and it's a part of a swarm that started in in mid-October. Well, there's a company out there, very interesting stuff, and this is reported via the Activist Post, by the way. There's a company out there that claims that nickel and carbon layers can turn your home into a Faraday cage, Now, you know, there's nothing like the image of a tinfoil hat to get people kind of giggling over the conspiracy person who takes precautions against brain scanning and mind control and all that. Well, I don't actually think that's so funny. If a tinfoil hat works, I'll wear it. But there is one thing that is occurring in the mainstream, not just those of us who know what's going on out there, but mainstream people are beginning to get concerned about government surveillance and uh, partly due to the revelations of Edward Snowden and and, uh, other things, people are just becoming concerned about their privacy, and many average people are convinced that somebody is actually watching or listening to them. Well, various solutions have been offered about how to protect your privacy while connected to the Internet or when using your mobile phone, but one new product holds the potential to protect you at the source, your house it's not quite tinfoil of course but it does claim to offer a physical shield against surveillance and attack the company is called conducive composites it's based in utah which interestingly you guys is home of the nsa's mega data center Uh, and this company makes small cases and enclosures for shielding electronics now the company claims that their lightweight material made Uh, by layering nickel on carbon, could be scaled up and essentially turn your entire house into a Faraday cage capable of blocking efforts at snooping, while also offering protection from electromagnetic radiation and EMP attacks. Fascinating. So if you want to check that out, Google Conducive Composites. Excuse me, I beg your pardon. Conductive Composites and uh based in Utah. See what you can find about that. Let's keep an eye on them. They may actually yeah. invent something. You know, the activist post is sort of a radical consider sort of radical media and the article went on to say that the author of this article said that he even doubted that it would even be legal to use something like that. That the government is so worried about people avoiding uh surveillance that if you do you're considered to be sort of a you know, criminal type. <laughs> and said it you know so you can get a Faraday cage maybe but then get in trouble cuz you're using it anyway i don't know about that but this is interesting so uh check that out conductive composites i'm going to check that out well okay moving on with our scientific studies uh and news for this week there's just something very amazing going on uh scientists are on the verge of creating light-based computers Well now, while nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, and while we use light to carry signals along the fiber optic cables, we actually use electrons to process sound and information in our phones and computers. Now the reason has always been because light particles, which are photons, for those of you that don't know, are extremely difficult to manipulate, whereas electrons can be manipulated relatively easily. Well, now a group of Harvard physicists has taken a major step towards solving that puzzle and have brought us one step closer to ultra-fast, light-based computers. And the physicists have created a material where the phase velocity of light is infinite, and their results were published in Nature Photonics just recently on the 19th of this month. Now, they say that the phase speed is infinite, much larger, infinitely larger than the speed of light. Well, this doesn't mean that light itself is traveling faster than the speed of light, which would violate the theory of relativity, but phase velocity refers to the speed of the crest of waves that ripple out when light strikes a material. And Harvard scientists created a material that allows these wave crests to move infinitely fast. Now, while this is kind of a strange thought to wrap your head around if you're an average person and not a physicist, what it means is the crests of the waves are oscillating through time, but not through space. And under these peculiar conditions, these Harvard scientists found that it's easy, easy to manipulate the photons, squeezing them down into the microscopic scale and turning them around. In other words, we can treat photons in the same way. We currently manipulate electrons. Now, light-powered telecommunications would allow phones and computers to process information millions of times faster. And because light conserves energy far better than electrons, which tend to waste energy by creating heat, the battery lives of our instruments would be lot, lot longer. So we'll see what happens with that. Interesting.
0: It's interesting.
2: I tell you something, this technology is wild. It's just runaway crazy. Well, um, it has been in the recent past that we have noted within this country that there have been technical problems with air traffic control in the United States. Well, now uh, planes have been grounded in Scotland due to major technical problems with air traffic control. In fact, dozens of flights at Scottish airports have been delayed as major technical problems at the Regional National Air Traffic Service, which is the Air Traffic Control Center in, I won't even read the name, but in Scotland. Uh, flights from Scottish airports to England, were delayed, to England excuse me, have been delayed up to two hours, according to the Edinburgh News. Now, they don't know what happened, uh, but they did say that there had been overnight interference with the radio frequencies that are used to communicate with airplanes. Very interesting. Mm. What caused interference with radio frequencies? The report is the sun is quiet, but it's worth noting and keeping an eye on. Well, in North Carolina, they have discovered something fascinating. Beachgoers have been shocked by finding the fossilized teeth of an ancient shark washed ashore. Now, these teeth are believed to have belonged to a 60-foot megalodon. Megalodon. The teeth were found at Topsail Beach in Surf City, and they're believed to have belonged to this histo- this uh, fossilized shark, which dominated the oceans 15 million years ago. Wow. That would be quite a find. Now, the article didn't say how big those teeth were, and I think that's unfortunate. I wanted to know how big were they. So (laughs) if any of you (laughs) find that out, would you email me the answer? (laughs) And, you know, there have just been floods, tremendous flooding all over the planet. A lot of the time I just don't cover this stuff because you just get report after report after report. But take my word for it, it's going on everywhere. And in Alexandria, Egypt, there was a deadly flash flood that killed at least seven people. And this is in Egypt, mind you, in the city of Alexandria. Torrential rain began falling on Sunday, accompanied by strong winds. And they say that there has been unseasonably settled weather to much of the eastern Mediterranean. In fact, Israel was just has been beset with the weirdest weather. Fist-sized hailstorms and flooding and winds... And just bizarre stuff going on. And you know, I was thinking if one considers energy as manifesting into material reality, and when you look at what's going on in the Middle East, should we not be, sir, you know, should we not expect that the weather would turn on its head? It seems to be matching the energy of the region. That's just a little editorial note from Anastasia here. Right. And uh, massive flooding, of course, in Texas, and more rain is expected for parts of Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Arkansas. You all just came from there. think you missed the, uh, the bad hurricane weather from Patricia. I'm not covering that tonight because that's been mainstream for days. But here's an interesting story about that. Uh, apparently, after days of flooding that swamped the towns in Texas, authorities in San Antonio got n- good news Sunday afternoon. A 41-year-old homeless man who was swept away by floodwaters was located more than a day after rushing water swept him away. The man was caught in the raging water when he chased after his dog, and after several hours, the search was called off because of unsafe conditions. More than 24 hours later, he was located, and he was treated for minor injuries and released from the hospital. So there's a survivor that got very lucky, that he was discovered. And in Utah, they have discovered another fossil of interest. A strange pig-snouted turtle that lived alongside the tyrannosaurs and duck-billed dinosaurs has been discovered in Utah. The only turtle ever known to have had a pig snout. The University of Utah announced a finding last week. A team from the Natural History Museum of Utah discovered fossils of this strange-looking turtle in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in southern Utah. It's beautiful country, by the way. They say it's one of the weirdest turtles that have ever lived. And this, uh, these are coming from scientists who have are experts in turtles, and they're saying they've never seen anything like it. The two-foot-long turtle lived about 76 million years ago. And they say that was when southern Utah was a wet, hot climate with rivers and bayous. Ooh, that just I can just see that in my mind.
1: Wow. And in
2: Greece, U.S. archaeologists have uncovered the skeleton of an ancient warrior that has lain undisturbed for more than 3,500 years, along with a huge hoard of treasure. The wooden coffin of this unknown soldier was found in the site of the Mycenaean uh, era palace of nestor on greece's Pelopoponnese peninsula now he had been laid to rest with an array of fine gold jewelry including an ornate string of pearls signet rings a bronze sword with a gold and ivory handle silver vases and ivory combs and the jewelry is decorated in the si- in the style of the minoans which was a civilization that flourished on the island of crete from around 2000 bc and it has the figures of deities, animals, and floral motifs. It was quite a find, amazing find. Lots of oh, beautiful things, huh? Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> Isn't that
2: something? found intact. You know, they're just discovering, like out lavender said, they're just digging up so many fascinating things. Really, if they were honest, history would be entirely revamped, and the textbooks would be rewritten, but probably not in our lifetime. Well, maybe. Maybe somebody will get all
0: something
2: <laughs> about all that mystery history. Well, here's a wonderful and funny story and this is particularly for you Starseed because we're animal lovers. In New York, uh the New York Park says it went the uh they had a Halloween dog parade. I'll get this out in a second.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: New York had a Halloween dog r- parade. And they say that the park went to the dogs in a grand way on Saturday because uh, they hosted what was billed as the nation's largest Halloween dog parade with hundreds of doggies submitting to their owners' fanciful desires to see them in costumes as superheroes, dinosaurs, and the Pope. Thousands of spectators (laughs) lapped it up, mingling with nearly 300 four legged contestants around a stage in Manhattan's Tompkins Square Park. Every imaginable breed was paraded by one to preen before the judges in the hopes of a Best in Show award at the 25th annual outing, which raises money for the park's dog run. Well, there were. (laughs) This is just so cute. There was a dachshund named Daisy May dressed from head to tail in a Stegosaurus dinosaur suit. (laughs) <laughs> and uh <laughs> isn't that just cute? It, it, there were dogs, one woman was dressed as a nun and had her little puppy dressed up as the pope. Uh there were pictures on the internet with this and it was absolutely adorable. So, it sounds like a lot of fun. I actually would have liked to have seen it.
1: Oh, I'll have to go look for some YouTube's on that one.
2: Yeah, oh, you'll find them. Uh, people were snapping pictures, taking videos, and so on. So, really, really cute. Well, anyway, Halloween is coming, so I've got a quote for us tonight, and you're all going to identify with this. And this was a quote by Fernando Pessoa, whoever he is, but it's a great quote. He said, look, there's no metaphysics on earth like chocolates. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, give us chocolate and all is well. The ultimate enlightenment, chocolate. Wow. Well, we're going to have a great show tonight. I'm looking forward to it. This is fascinating stuff, and we're going to hear about Lavendar's experience. This is uh, just awesome. It's going to be a great program. So thank you, everybody. I wish you all a beautiful week, a safe week, a week full of light and love in your hearts, and we'll talk again next week. More news on the horizon.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much, Anastasia, for the Starseed News. So um, next I'm going to I'm gonna bring Lavendar on, and and then we'll bring Nick, our guest, uh, in just a moment here. Okay, Lavendar.
3: Hi. Can, on. You, can you get Anastasia back? Can you get her oh, back? Oh, yeah? Okay, get her back. Yeah, I, I want to I'm say something to her. Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Hi. Hi, do you remember that some time ago I – I told you about a transmission that I received back in the early '80s, where they told me that the the product of nickel was going to be uh, all over the world, and for me to keep eyes on it because it would be a good investment of nickel. My
2: gosh, Lavendar, I absolutely do remember that, but I had forgot didn't click when I when I found that article. That is amazing.
3: Well, here it is. Because here
2: it is. That gives me goosebumps.
3: It's probably well, going to be one of the things that starts happening. People are going to order these these products probably not only for their house, but for their body, for their cars, for everything absolutely. probably.
2: In fact, this article said that um, even though the government might resist this, that they predicted that probably there would be kind of an uprising by the public who's just had it. You know, People are going to do it no matter what.
3: That's right. I will send you the link. Yeah, good. Good. I, I'm definitely going to look into this. Oh, that is so
2: thrilling. I do remember you telling me that. Well, here it is. Ta-da. Oh, you know, the there Tesla you go.
3: probably are behind this somewhere.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yep.
3: Anyway, yeah. I just wanted to, to, to see if you remembered me saying that.
2: I do remember you saying that, and that's, that's just awesome. That's exactly right.
3: Uh, they said, watch Nickel. Nickel is going to be in an appliance. It's, they said it's going to be on something that's going to be in every home in the world, is what they told me. <sighs>
2: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, all right. Okay,
3: thank you, Anastasia. Uh Good to be back. Good to hear your voice, girl. Oh,
2: same, same, same here, honey.
3: Okay, thanks. So I wanted to um, take a few moments before Nick comes on to talk about what we're going to be doing in Arkansas on November 13th, 14th, and 15th. We're doing a Pleiadian Lineup Weekend Crystal Dig, and um, we're asking for those that want to To come to contact uh, Tammy, uh, Tammy at StarseedHotline.com, and what we'll be doing is we will be gathering uh, on Friday, and Nick Redford, our guest tonight, he's going to be with us to talk about his two books, his two new books, uh, Men in Black and Bloodline of the Gods, and then on. Saturday, we'll go into the Quapaw and have baths with that wonderful, wonderful water and a massage. And then we'll come back and have a campfire and talk about lots of things that, that people want to know about in the UFO community and metaphysical community. And Tammy will uh, also give us um, a rundown on Manitaka and what's happened in that area with the Indians, and she'll bring us some Indian stories. Then on Saturday, we'll go up to Fisher Mountain for the for a crystal dig. And so I'm I'm putting the invitation out now because we really need uh, about about fifteen more people to come. So if you if you feel like this is a call for you, well then contact Tammy at Tammy at starseedhotline dot com. So is, is Nick with us now?
1: Yes he is. Yes he is. He's waiting patiently.
0: Okay. <laughs> so let me
1: just let me go down to the we have a lot of callers tonight and I'd love to see that so Emmy, I mean just get your mic open all right hey nick welcome to the show
4: oh well, thanks <clears throat> thanks for having me on again
1: it's our pleasure as always
4: thanks so
3: nick i've been engrossed in this book uh ever since you sent it to me man in black oh. and i thank you so much for putting uh my story um in your book you you really wrote it very very well and i i appreciate so much and by the way you're the first person that I have allowed to even write anything about me.
4: So oh, well. it, This is a Thank first. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. I appreciate that. Thanks.
3: So, why don't we just tell our audience some fun stories about Men in Black? You start anywhere that you want to start.
4: Well, yes, yeah, sure. I mean, the new book, which is called Men in Black, is sort of a—it's a bit of a departure from a lot of my other books in the sense that, um, whereas I, I typically sort of. Um, write the books myself this is sort of very much based around the the personal experiences of about 30 people who've either had encounters with the men in black or have had or have developed theories and ideas as to who they might be or what they might be and so you know it's presented very much in their own words with me providing an introduction for them and um and certainly you know the cases um Demonstrate something that I've found for years, which is the, one of the most important things: is that you know the real Men in Black are very different from the from the movie versions of Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. You know, the um, for the most part, you know the, the movies portray the Men in Black as agents of some secret arm of government. Um, whereas the reality is that many of the cases, the men in black, have a lot of sort of supernatural overtones attached to them and uh, which sort of, take them, sort of take it far removed, you know, from the sort of straightforward nuts and bolts aspects of UFOs.
3: You know, the thing that I noticed in the book that was consistent was how that some of the uh, the black-eyed children that you talk about in here the the questions that they would ask, and they seem to not know how to to function in society. It's like Mm. they didn't know what to do with a fork or a knife, or uh, it's like they have just no experience about being on Earth. Can you give us a few examples of what you found with the black-eyed children?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because um, there are a lot of parallels with the things you just mentioned between the black-eyed children and the men in black. Both of them have these sort of awkward um, characteristics when they're around people. Uh, For example, the people who had these sort of weird knocks on the door late at night from these so-called black-eyed children, who in many respects are like the men in black, but they're just child versions. You know, the men in black turn up in black suits and black fedoras. The black-eyed children turn up in black hoodies. So you also have like a hat component as well. They both have very pale skin. And both of them, the men in black and the black-eyed children, try and find ways into people's homes. And they do so, you know, sort of using sort of couch terms and obviously created stories, you know, can we use the telephone, we need to phone our parents, things like that. And because the black-eyed children look so weird, like the men in black, most people are kind of very reluctant to let them in the house and in fact as far as the black-eyed children are concerned i'm not personally aware of any cases where they've succeeded in getting in the homes they've just tried their best to do that but the men in black are sort of far better at getting in but you're right they don't seem to understand our mannerisms and our cultures and things like this and and again this goes for the mib and the black-eyed children they don't seem to understand the concept of even eating food. They kind of are baffled by it. Um, They're very pale. They have these sort of bulging eyes. And this has given rise to the theory that both the black-eyed children and the men in black could be some sort of alien-human hybrid that are sent out, essentially, to see how easily they can infiltrate society or how not so easily. In other words, they're sort of test runs to see if... You know, we we don't notice them for what they actually are, but so far at least, you know, they're so strange and different, even though they look human in many respects. There are a lot of aspects about them that look nothing but human, and so nothing, you know, human at all. So in that sense, if it is sort of a test run to see if they can sort of infiltrate society, they're really still not doing a very good job of it. Um, you talk
3: uh, quite a bit in... in book about John Keel and the different things that he was involved in, the Mothman prophecies. Uh, Where was that located? In in West Virginia, wasn't it? Point Pleasant, maybe?
4: Well, most of the sightings of the Mothman occurred in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And what happened was that they coincided with sightings of this creature that became known as the Mothman. And um, when the sightings of Mothman were at the height, sort of 66, 67, um, Point Pleasant was hit by a sort of a plague of Men in Black encounters and sightings. Many of the people who had seen Mothman were also sort of subjected to MIB visits and also things like mail tampering and telephone interference and, and things like this. And again, the, the Men in Black in the, appeared throughout that whole Mothman era, 66, 67 in Point Pleasant, all of those men in black were sort of described like the classically weird versions, sort of they're only about five feet to five feet five tall, they're very pale, very skinny, they kind of looked anemic and anorexic and sunken cheeks. You know, they they kind of looked like, as some people said, as if like a a corpse that had just been dug up, something along those lines. And um they also tried to find their way into people's homes And and again, many of the cases had sort of supernatural aspects to them where people who encountered them reported things like poltergeist activity in the home, um, sudden onset of illnesses and disease, and just sort of runs of bad luck even. You know, it was almost like your worst Monday morning multiplied ten times over. And um, they associated all of this with the sort of manifestations of these men in black.
3: You know, I was thinking about, um, you know, I, I have this way of uh, tracking through astrological timing that 25, 26, and 27 degrees of a sign uh, mm-hmm. to find the star seeds on the planet. And I've noticed that some dates and events that, that you know, are around the middle of the month, like November 17th, 18th, and 19th, of course, is Pleiadian lineup. So I'm kind of noticing that that uh, these dates are very important for a lot of ET activity. So my my thought is this. I wonder if there's a way to find out when some of these MIB events take place to look it up astrologically to see if these markings, these 25, 26, and 27-degree planets are showing up with the men in black's um, uh, appearances. I'm just wondering about that.
4: Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I've never actually thought about sort of drawing a parallel with, um, you know, the dates. I've I've sort of primarily looked looked at it from the perspective of where the events occurred and, you know, what the connection was in terms of the sighting or the case and as to why they turned up. But, yeah, that might be an interesting thing to, to look into, you know, sort of the frequency of times and dates and things like that.
3: And also the people, you know, looking at the people that it happens to, I wonder if they have those markings in their charts. Because, you know, when I was doing this investigation, mm-hmm. I found um, the thing that really alarmed me was the the uh, kids' pictures on the milk cartons years ago that were missing, and I started finding a correlation between the star markings mm-hmm. and the birth dates of the kids that were missing and the dates that they disappeared. Huh. So it's, it makes me wonder now if this is a, a trend that will happen with the men in black. I'm just I'm just kind of curious about how we would, how we go about finding that out?
1: Mm-hmm. So maybe
3: in the future we could start asking questions about what day did this happen and what time did it
4: happen, and that way we could probably, you know, do a chart. Now, that's an interesting angle to take, because of one of the problems we have with the men in black stores is trying to predict when they're going to turn up and, you know, will one day we'll be able to catch one of these things. Um, the problem is they're always one step ahead of us, but if we were able to sort of tie it in with dates, maybe we could sort of, you know, anticipate the events occurring and be there before it actually happens, possibly.
3: Uh, you wrote a, a, in here a, a story about a lady that had static on her phone, phone calls from the dead, and um, this, this was a very interesting chapter. Would you mind... Re- um, relaying that to our audience about how they use the telephone.
4: Yeah, well, this is, you know, I guess a lot of people think of the Men in Black and they think of sort of knocks on the doors and threats and intimidations in the living room, that kind of thing. And that's certainly, you know, a, a major part of the whole Men in Black mystery. But a lot of people who have had MIB encounters in person, they, that it hasn't just started and ended with that they've uh, experienced weird telephone interference, and that can range from things like weird electronic bleeps and noises down the phone to just sort of like a a constant static type of noise, and also to um, sort of outright direct threats, and also what sounds like fast chattering in foreign languages, but languages that they're not able to decipher. And sometimes the voices sound almost electronic rather than, you know, coming from a physical living creature. And um, many of these calls have been made to uh, UFO witnesses in the early hours of the morning, late at night, clearly trying to create some sort of intimidation on the part of the witnesses. And uh, these stories, again, were sort of flying around Point Pleasant, West Virginia, when the Mothman was seen. and many of the witnesses who saw the MIB had these follow-up weird phone calls and, um, as I said, like static noises down the phone. And um, often it sort of destabilized their sleep, you know, when you get in three or four of these calls throughout the night, four or five nights a week. And the the telephone company wasn't able to track them down. And bizarrely, in some cases, there was no record of calls even being made to the homes at the times when the witnesses said the calls came through. You know, it was as if they were able to get into the phone systems, but not by actually using the telephone company, which sounds, you know, kind of strange. Um, and a lot of people, you know, find these calls very intimidating, particularly if they've got private numbers. And it kind of ties in a little bit with another aspect of the phenomenon, well, actually two aspects, where people who've had these weird phone calls also talk about how sometimes in the same time frame cars had pulled up outside the house and somebody had jumped out and quickly took a photo of the house, jumped back into this old black car and sped off. And it also ties in with people who've had um, mail interference. That's to say, you know, the mail has arrived, but it's been clearly torn open and resealed. And, again, I think that's done for effect because it's not that difficult to open an envelope and reseal it and not make it look as if, you know, it has been torn open. So I think it's like a deliberate thing to try and, again, worry the person just to let them know somebody's watching them or or something's watching them.
3: So do you think that uh, sometimes um, when they knock on the door and say, we don't want you talking about what you just saw, do you think that they actually – would make a a UFO come and have an experience with someone just so they could go and say, don't talk
4: about it? Do you think they were involved that deeply? I'm not entirely sure, because for the most part, we don't see the men in black linked directly with UFO sightings. I mean, there are one or two cases where people have claimed to have seen men in black in association, you know, with a UFO. They've seen a man in black come out of it. But for those reports, there's literally maybe a handful versus probably thousands of reports now of the men in black. And so, in other words, we have people who see UFOs and then people are visited by the Men in Black afterwards. But it's very, very rarely that people see a Man in Black at the site of a UFO encounter or within a UFO. As I said, that they're so small; those number of reports are so small to be almost non-existent. So it's as if the two phenomena are connected, but in many respects they're also, you know, kept completely apart as well.
3: You know, in the movie Men in Black, you know, they had that little gadget that they would. It, aim at somebody so that they wouldn't have memory. They erase their mind. Remember that in the movie. Yeah. Well. Um, did they? Did they do anything like that? Do they? You know, want to um, erase the fact that they were even there? Have they done anything like that? You
4: think? Well, they actually have. Now, I've never come across a single case where they've had some sort of weird little device. I think that is pretty much, you know, a creation of oh. the movies. But the important thing to remember is that the. The movies were actually inspired by a comic book uh, series, and the comic books were inspired by the real-life reports. You know, the the creators of the comic book had clearly researched the Men in Black phenomenon. And there are actually many cases where the the MIB have the ability to control the minds of the people. For example, you know, if your doorbell rang or there was a loud thump at the door at midnight you probably wouldn't open the door. You, at the very least, you would look through the spy hole, and if you saw three little guys in black suits and black fedoras, you, and it was midnight, you probably would not open the door. You probably would phone the police.
3: <laughs> no kidding. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but what actually happens is most people don't phone the police for we- reasons they can't understand. They feel compelled that they have to open the door, and they do so in almost like a drug-like state. It's as if the Men in Black can take over... Your sort of um common sense factors and and your mind to ensure that they are able to enter the house and then the person lets them in and sort of stumbles back onto the couch in a bit of a daze and the men then the men in black start reeling off all these threats and warnings, and the person just sits there and takes it you know and um although they're frightened they they feel sometimes they feel weak and tired, lacking in energy. And sort of feeling faint Um, some witnesses have said it was almost as if the men in black was sort of like draining them of energy and um, and excuse me and then what happens after that is that the men in black when they're satisfied they're finished they get up and leave and they close the door behind them and then it's like the witnesses are coming out of you know when somebody's had a surgery and they're coming out of anesthetic their mind slowly starts to come back to normal And then they say to themselves, well, why did I let him in? So they jump up and race to the door. But the problem is it's taken five or six minutes for them to come out of this weird altered state. And by that time, of course, the men in black had long gone. And I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't been able to catch them because they act in a very sort of skillful fashion where they're totally in control of the situation and of the person's mind. So, again, this pushes things far away from... You know, a government angle, and far more down, sort of a paranormal angle, where these things can sort of literally enslave our minds.
3: So, do you think that there's a some other power behind them that that has them do this, or do they do it on their own? Do you think they're self-activated, uh, um, take it upon themselves to go find these people that are having these experiences to shut them
4: up, or do you think someone's telling them to do that? Well, I think there's some some external or, you know, independence phenomenon that's controlling them. Now, what that might be is a is a good question because we don't just get men in black encounters in relation to UFOs. People who've seen Bigfoot have been visited by the men in black. There are reports of people dabbling with Ouija boards who were visited by men in black and where there was no UFO component at all. So, in other words, it's not just UFOs. It's as if the, the MIB turn up in sort of multiple different paranormal settings um now in terms of who might be sort of sending them out i mean that's an interesting thing that because some people have said they or a lot of people have said that they felt the men in black who visited them weren't even sort of self-aware it was almost as if they were something constructed to perform a specific task almost like a 3d equivalent of a you know, like a computer program. You know, it's designed to perform a specific task over and over again. And uh, and that's all it does, and it's not self-aware. And some people have suggested that that's what happens with the men in black, that their whole programming is designed to threaten people, but they're not self-aware entities that know why they do it. And that might explain when people take the, you know, the scenario off the The tracks that the MIB wanted on. When they start saying, do you want something to eat or drink, the MIB don't know how to respond because they're just primed to threaten you. And if you sort of derail the threat in some respect, they don't know. You know, it's like the program crashes briefly and um, they become confused and they stumble and sometimes they quickly make their excuses and leave. So, you know, the but that, of course, leads to the big question of, well, if the men in black are some sort of sophisticated program, almost, who is it that's doing the program? And that's, you know, that's the big question. We don't know, still, even who is behind the men in black.
3: You know, after all these years that we've heard about them, I don't know how many years that they've been showing up. You'd think that they'd come up with a different wardrobe. It's like, <laughs> it's like they all dress the same in black with white shirts and with a fedora hat. Mm-hmm. and they drive these these kind of older uh, black cars.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, that's just I, I don't know there's just something very very strange about
0: mm-hmm.
3: their evolution of thought. They, they don't if I if I were them, I would <coughs> want dressed differently so that I wouldn't be exposed. When you see people dressed like that, those of us in this movement, we know that they're the men in black. <laughs> you know well, what I'm saying? You know, it's
4: interesting you bring that up because that also kind of ties in with this issue of like a sophisticated program the idea that you know there's just this one original template that's used all the time and um this has actually given rise to the idea that kind of along the same lines as the you know the idea of a sophisticated program what if it's like a holographic program in other words you know what if the men in black when they turn up actually aren't sort of physical flesh and blood animals or creatures however you want to defy them what if it is actually kind of like a like a sophisticated hologram where you almost you have the experience in what would be almost like an altered state like a dream world kind of like the matrix scenario in the movies where you know all the people think they're living in the real world but they, they're all asleep just you know providing energy for machines and the the world that they think we all think we live in is like a a dream world Some people think that's what happens with the men in black, that they place, that some sort of phenomenon places the witness into like an altered state and projects this entire play, almost like a stage play, if you like, into the person's mind. So in other words, the theory is that when you have these men men in black experiences, you may be just sort of sat on your couch in like a trance-like state, and if anybody else was there they wouldn't see anything. There would not be any Men in Black because it's projected into your mind that all this is going on. uh, But again, the effect is still to silence the witness. And, you know, it sounds a bizarre theory, but it might explain why we never catch these things if, if it is sort of like a computer or something along the lines of like a sophisticated program downloaded into your mind and you kind of, you know, see it in the same way that you would play in a computer game or something like that. There was a movie not too long ago called uh,
3: um, something Bureau, readjustment. um, Oh, the Adjustment Bureau. Adjustment Bureau. Yeah. Uh, You know, when I saw that movie, I thought about the men in
4: black throughout the Mm. whole movie. I I said, yeah, that's how they act. Well, yeah, I mean, the the movie um, is actually quite, well, not quite different. I mean, it's slightly different to the the original story, which was written by a a sci-fi author, Philip K. Dick. And um, in his original story, they don't dress, you know, like the Men in Black, but in the movie version, you know, they are kind of, they look like the Men in Black, you know, they have the hats and the suits and everything else. But yeah, I mean, th- that movie does sort of parallel a lot of me- uh, Men in Black stories where they're able to manipulate people and um, place them into sort of altered states and, you know, change reality and things like that. So, um that That is sort of far more like what the, the real men in black are like, rather than, you know, as I said, the secret agent, Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith scenario, which is actually far removed from what most people report.
3: Right. So So now to change the subject a little bit, let's talk a little bit about your book, Bloodlines of the Gods. What kind of feedback have you gotten since you've been on our show and you introduced the book to the world? Give us some feedback
4: on what's coming back to you from different people. Oh, well, the, the main thing, more than anything else, I think, is the the sort of sheer number of people who contacted me who are RH negative and have a, f- a fascination for UFOs and felt drawn to, the, drawn to the subject. That's something which I'm getting a lot, is not just people talking about their experiences. Some of them, you know, had abduction experiences, contactee experiences, but a lot of them, um didn't have any experiences but they still from childhood felt deeply drawn to the subject and they were all rh negative so I've, you know i've had a like a, a large number of people contact me on you know either facebook or by email etc um just saying hey you know i always wondered why i was so drawn to this and now i'm seeing that there are so many other people just like me with the same blood group the same strange experiences, having synchronicities, UFO encounters, and not knowing why I'm drawn to this, and I think what it was, a lot of people kind of saw themselves reflected in some of the people I talk about in the book, you know, they could relate to it, and I think, I think that's an important thing, it sort of demonstrates sort of a, like a unification between all of these people.
3: For those that that didn't hear your um, radio interview with us about a month ago, give us about a a couple of paragraphs to describe what Bloodlines of the Gods was based on.
4: Well, yeah, sure. It's basically a study of people whose blood is Rh negative. It's a small percentage of the population, sort of about 7, 8, 9%, where their blood is distinctly different from the rest of the population. And it can actually cause a lot of problems. In terms of um, pregnancy and birth, and um, you know, the bloodline is actually quite, you know, very, very different. And um, what we find is that not only is it sort of a blood-based anomaly, but a lot of people who are Rh negative are um, UFO abductees, contactees, people who've seen UFOs, people who feel drawn to the subject and are fascinated by it, even though they don't know why. And so the book looks at the issue of sort of genetics and um, manipulation by extraterrestrials of human DNA to create what we might call sort of like a a definitively different type of person. Although, you know, for the most part they don't look any different or act any different, but there may be subtle differences that place them into sort of an ancient alien lineage, if you like. And so the you know, the, the, the theme is looking at the RH negatives and how and why they play such a large role in, in UFO encounters.
3: Now, is it is both of your books, are they written in other
4: languages or is it all in English? No, um, a lot of my books have been translated into other languages, but what typically happens is that the the foreign overseas editions usually don't surface until probably about sort of six months to a year after the english versions um it all it's largely dependent on you know which publishers might be interested and um what their schedules are as well in terms of you know putting out other books and um but that's always done through the the publisher the the all publishers have sort of foreign rights departments and they handle you know the 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 um overseas um versions and arrange, uh, you know, for translators and all that kind of thing. And that's all sort of done between the U.S. publisher and the the respective publisher in the, in the other country, whether it's like France or Germany or China or Japan, where, you know, a lot of my books have been published.
3: That's great. You know, we're really looking forward to you being our guest uh, speaker for our Pleiadian lineup weekend, Crystal Dig in Arkansas. And a lot of people that were at our quest uh, that we just came from, they had o- already ordered your Bloodline of the Gods book, so there was many discussions about your work already in our oh, in our groups, good. and so we're really looking forward to
4: having this weekend with you uh, well, because you're going so many... to bring so many. Well, yeah, I think it should be good, you know, and it'll be. Uh, the reason I like doing things like this is because you know it's not just about sharing information, but it's sort of like a good social thing where people. Get to know each other when, up until then you've just been a voice down the phone, you know, and uh, it's sort of good to have that sort of social interaction as well as you know sharing the u f o material as well
3: and the thing that's so wonderful about our groups when they get together is that they there there's kind of like a beep beep that happens in our heads and other. People's beep beeps and our beep beeps come together It's like a calling. It's like people show up and they all seem to have something in common. It's like soul groups are finding one another uh through these uh crystal quests that we're doing, and especially the weekends the weekends they call a kind of a different group to come, and I'm noticing that we have so many people that are so open and so ready to share their experiences it's like it's It's like old home week is what happens.
4: So I think you're really going
3: to enjoy meeting the people that do show up for this.
4: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it will be a good weekend.
3: So I know that you don't have a whole lot of time tonight. I think you said that you could stay for about 30 more minutes. So at this time I'd like to turn you over to Ariel and the switchboard. I think some people might want to call in and, and, and talk to you. So, Nick, we'll be talking to you later. Thank you so much for being our guest tonight. Thanks, Lavender.
1: So, um, We have a lot of people on the switchboard, and if you have a question or a comment for Nick, all you need to do is press 1 so we know you want to come on the air. If you're listening on the computer, then you'll need to dial in on 917-889-8292, and then press 1 once you're in so that we know you want to come on the air. So... um, Anybody that has a question or a comment from Nick, uh now's your chance. And I think that this this latest um book that you've released has a a personal relevancy because this is this is more about you know the stories and encounters of of people that you've interviewed, is that correct?
4: Yeah, I mean this is one of the things I wanted to get across. In writing the book was how sort of deeply personal a lot of these stories come um, to the people you know it's not just somebody sees a ufo yeah that's fascinating enough but to have sort of these sinister figures sort of intrude on your home it kind of takes the personal angle to a whole new level and that's one of the things i tried to get across was to present stories from people whose lives had been you know, in many respects, sort of turned upside down and created a lot of fraught situations. It's almost like, I guess, the closest thing you can think of would be something like, you know, your house gets burgled, that kind of thing. You know, the person feels invaded. And um, that's that's how a lot of the Men in Black stories come across to people, The that sense of like a like a home invasion that they're unable to do anything about it. And um, I think for a lot of people, that's one of the most sort of stressful and sort of worrying aspects of this phenomenon that these creatures or beings, whatever they are can get in our house and there's you know, our houses and there's almost no way to stop them. You know, that's, that's sort of the, I guess the most worrying thing of all. And that comes across in a lot of the stories that I've related in the book where people, in some cases, had stayed silent on their um, encounters with the Men in Black for years. In fact, in some cases, for decades, where they they felt for 20, 30 years that, well, if I tell anyone now, what if it opens it all up again? And in actual fact, one of the people I interviewed for the book gave me a really good interview, and um, I use a, a presenter and the pseudonym of Christine in the book. There's actually only two or three people out of the 35 or six Mentioned in the book who are under pseudonyms, and Christine was one of them. And just after the story was published, excuse me, after she told me the story, and I was getting ready to sort of write it all up for the book, um, she said that she wanted to break off contact because it had sort of opened this all up again and she'd started having weird things going on that were associated with the men in black. And, you know, I said, well, you know, I, I I get that and, you know, I'm sorry all this is going kicking off again. She thought that after sort of three decades, which is basically what it was, that that would have been enough time and that would have left her alone. But no sooner had she told me the story and it all popped up again. So um, you find a lot of that as well where people are become paranoid even about discussing their encounters, never mind, you know, sharing the stories or publishing them.
1: Well you know the the question comes to me that if if these men in black are not they're not part of a government agency they're not hooked into um you know databases and and you know the telephone information how do they know you know if someone has seen something and you know where how do they where do they get their leads? How do they know? How do they pinpoint
4: these people? Yeah, that's actually a very good question because one of the weirdest things about most men in black cases is that they have the ability to find UFO witnesses where the witness has never actually told anyone about the encounter. Now, it's one thing, say if you live in a little town and you see the UFO and you decide to go to the local newspaper and you tell them and they splash it across the front page, you know, because there's not much going on in that, the little town and then because everybody knows you know it's like mr smith of you know this street or that street you know saw a ufo and everybody knows where who he is and where the house is etc and in that sort of situation it's understandable how someone might turn up on the doorstep but there are many cases where the people are so fearful of uh, or the ufo inventors stress them out or they just you know they want value their privacy and they don't want to talk about it And they might not even have told a single family member or even a single friend. And yet still they get visited by the men in black. It's almost as if they have some way of sort of radaring in to people who've had UFO encounters, but how and why they do that. We just don't have the answer to those questions. But, um, but you, I mean, John Keel found a lot of cases like that where people had had experiences and, the only reason they shared the information with Keel was because somebody visited them. Um, in other words, they, they hadn't discussed the cases before. Um, you know, the the, the man in black turned up. They only discussed them after because they felt frightened and they wanted to share the data. And, and Keel was at a loss as well to try and figure out how the MIB knew when to turn up and, and where to turn up. You
1: know, it. it... If they, if they, I mean, they kept, couldn't possibly be monitoring every every single person and looking no. for that thing. It it seems that it has to come from the other side, like the the UFO that was seen knows yeah, where it was.
4: Yeah, I the only way to explain it is that you know, in some fashion, um, the UFO phenomenon has an ability to to keep sort of constant watch on people. And, um, I mean, that actually does sort of crop up in, for example, alien abduction stories where people move house sometimes across, you know, from one side of the U.S. to the other, and the U.S. is a huge country. And yet, you know, the abductions continue in the new home, um, as if, again, they have a way to track um, the abductees or the contactees, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s when... The contactee movement was at its height. You had people being visited by, um, you know, the so-called Space Brothers and things like this, and it didn't really matter where the person moved to or lived. They always found a way to to find them. So, you know, you find this across much of the UFO subject, not just with Men in Black, but as I said, with contactees, with abductees. The phenomenon always seems to find the person.
1: Yeah, it certainly... (laughs) there's a lot of mystery connected and a lot of questions that may never be answered. Well, yeah,
4: a lot of people don't realize how much mystery there is surrounding the Men in Black. They think, you know, a lot of people think it's very simplistic. Oh, the Men in Black are from the CIA or the FBI, and, you know, we just need to catch them one day. It's, You know, if it was only that simple, it would have been solved years ago. But the sort of the sheer weirdness of the men in black, the way they look, the way they act, this sort of sickly appearance and the old clothes and the ability to control people's minds, you know. They're not FBI agents. You know, I can say that. I I don't know what they are, but I can tell you for sure what they're not. You know, they're not coming from the Pentagon, FBI. Right.
1: Well, there's got to be some kind of um, microchip implant, some kind of a system of tracking...
4: uh, Yeah, well, that's what some people think, you know. Is there some sort of tracking device scenario involved um, where they're able to monitor our every movement? Now, you know, that's not as bizarre as it might sound. I mean, 90% of the population probably now around the world, you know, have iPhones. Um, Well, what's a better way to track a person than with an iPhone? So if... um, you know, I remember a few years ago people were saying, Oh, we're all gonna be implanted, you know, with tracking devices and we can't allow this to happen um but people have allowed it to happen. It's just not a it's it's no longer though the fear of um you know, a little chip placed under your skin. Everybody's everybody essentially is has a, a tracking device implanted in them, but it's called an iPhone in their pocket, <laughs> you know. Um hey. the movements of every single person on who has an iPhone can be watched and monitored and followed and as can up their every social media activity, email or everything they check online via their iPhone you know can be tracked by that device so if we can do that today, it's not at all out of the question that somebody could be using an even more sophisticated version to track abductees, contactees people, you know, who've had UFO encounters or sightings or have seen UFOs landing. You know, it's a profound event. And so, you know, if we can do it, we can monitor people twenty four seven. There's no reason why an even more superior intelligence couldn't do that and even more too.
1: Well that's true. That's true. And does it does it seem like the occurrences of visitations from the MIB um, do they ebb and flow because you said there was a you know major mm. activities you know around certain um dates in the past yeah but do, do you, well, is there any pattern that you have seen where um maybe it seems like they're not as um active from time to time or is it constant
4: Well, that's a good question, because certainly we do see Men in Black encounters in sort of waves, like, for example, the most famous one being the Mothman encounters from 66 to 67 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Now, Men in Black were all over Point Pleasant like a rash, you know. They were everywhere um, throughout that period. And that's happened on a number of other occasions as well. For example... In the early 1950s, a guy named Albert Bender, who lived in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in 1952 he established the International Flying Saucer Bureau, Um, and really it was sort of one of the very earliest UFO groups, and and it took off massively. He found his newsletter being subscribed to from people all across the planet, and you know, he was sending out hundreds and hundreds of copies of his newsletter, self-published newsletter, and when this was going down the men in black suddenly surfaced and they were all over town in his town bridgeport connecticut he was seeing them late at night um in alleyways kind of just staring out malevolently watching people um they sort of plagued him several times as well and um there are a number of these odd reports all around bridgeport connecticut um there have been other examples like this where a particular area has been a hotspot for UFO activity. Or as I said, other paranormal activity as well. For example, in 1973, there's a wave of Bigfoot sightings in Pennsylvania, many of which had very strange overtones to them where the Bigfoot creatures would sort of vanish in flashes of light or they would become invisible and and a lot of sort of paranormal aspects to the Bigfoot phenomenon which appeared. And in those cases, the, the Men in Black turned up in when there was this Bigfoot wave in Pennsylvania in '73, and they warned people not to talk about their encounters. Um, there were some cases where they reportedly confiscated, for example, where people had made plastic casts of Bigfoot prints, and uh, they took those away um so in other words we do see waves of the men in black but it's not also always just in relation to ufos sometimes it's um in connection with other issues as well
1: anything that's <laughs> on the on the bizarre um well yeah that,
4: that's right most people do associate, yeah most people do associate the men in black just with ufos but uh as I sort of briefly said to, to Lavender, that um, I've got a few cases where they turned up where people have been dabbling with Ouija boards, and, and with hindsight, they felt that the, they personally sort of opened a, a doorway or a portal, if you like, that allowed these MIB to come through, and that when the door was opened, then there was sort of no way to close it again.
1: Mm. Well, um, we do have a caller that has um, come with a question. So if if you are um, up for that, we can talk to Shana here in just a moment. Get your microphone open. Hey, Shana, thanks for calling. Hi, thank you. Thank are you sure? for asking
0: my question. Um, I have a question about the the phone calls, like uh-huh. the electronic phone calls. I've experienced that, and um, I never put two and two together, but. But it was extremely strange, and I, I was curious, what do you feel like the purpose of that is? And, um, you know, maybe just elaborate a little bit more.
4: Yeah, sure. Well, uh, basically, Shana, the the men in black, uh, as I said, they, 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 ca- they carry out sort of certain different tasks, but they're all sort of the same tasks over and over again, like knocking on people's doors and intimidating them, pulling up outside people's homes and photographing the home, And mail interference, you know, mail being opened and resealed but torn open. But then, I guess the more prominent one, aside from the visits, is this telephone interference. Now, I'm not personally aware of very few cases. There aren't aren't many cases where it's sort of an either-or thing. You know, it's either just the visit or just the phone calls. It's typically um, a combination of them, but not always. Um, Now in these phone call situations um typically they occur at night or in the early hours there aren't that many although there are some reports where they you know these phone calls have been made during the day typically it isn't during the day and i think probably the main reasons for this is you know if you get a phone call in the middle of the night your first thought is it's it's bad news you know um, and I think that's done deliberately for effect. It kind of fries the person's nerves when it happens once. You know, you're woken up at three in the morning by a phone call. You race to the phone, wondering who's died. You know, that's probably most people's first thought. Um, and but when this goes on and on, and not only is your sleep disturbed, but you know you're on edge. I think you know that that's the motivation behind it. Now there are some calls where. The person has sort of posed as like a census taker or something like this and ask questions down the phone which start off normal sounding like for example how many people live in the home what's the you know the annual income that kind of thing um and then they start asking weirder questions about have you had any strange dreams and have you ever thought about ufos you know, as if they're trying to get information out of people or possibly just, you know, send the person down an even more paranoid pathway. I think a lot of this, it's almost like a stage play done for effect where the whole goal of this is just to frighten and intimidate the person. And I guess things like, like I said, there there are several categories. There are the phone calls where somebody speaks to the person and offers like a, a bit of a sinister threat or they pose as a census taker there are other ones where the person picks the phone up and there's just like static or just hissing in the background just you know you can vaguely hear something but there's nothing really going on it's almost you know as if the the lines open but there's no one there other cases it's it's sort of distinct electronic noises um sort of scratches bleeps that kind of thing um and then in some really weird cases the extremely fast rapid chattering Mm. to the point where almost as if a person couldn't replicate it because it's so fast but it comes across not just as sort of random weird noises but it, it kind of sounds like a language but no one's been able to say hey you know i recognize that that's german or it's french or it's italian but it does sound like a a complex language and uh and again all of this kind of stuff is i think guaranteed to sort of you know put the chills in people
0: yes that that's what i experienced it seemed Mm. like a a foreign language and it was um Mm. very long and and as soon as i heard it um it just made the hair on my arm stand up it was um but thank you for thank you for answering my question that uh,
4: Lastly, one other last thing, Shannon, did you have any sort of weird things going on before all the phone call stuff happened?
0: Mm, I feel like I live in a constant
4: (laughs) experience of (laughs) weird things happening, so yeah, yeah, that
0: probably does have something to do with it Yeah, because
4: it's very rarely that this phone call intimidation happens. Without something else having gone on beforehand, you know, like I said, seeing a UFO, having a Bigfoot encounter or having some involvement in the paranormal, it's usually, the, the phone calls usually follow some sort of event that's happening in a person's life along these lines. So that's something it, for, for people to keep in mind as well.
0: It was a very intense time in my life. And actually, I remember it was mid-May in 2010 when it happened. Mm. Um that's you know close to the Pleiadian lineup, so um, it's, it's interesting timing. But but um, it was it's uh, very scary. I mean, I thought about it for days, and I haven't thought about that experience for a long time until you mentioned it. It's uh, something to
1: add to the notes. Thank you again. <laughs> oh,
4: well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks
1: for calling, Shana. Yeah,
4: you're thank you. welcome. Thanks, Shana. Bye
1: bye. <laughs> Yeah, you know that's it's very disconcerting. Um, you know when, <laughs> yeah, like you said, when the phone rings in the middle of the night, yeah. your first thing is that there's a family emergency. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, and then yeah, that and it seems to me everything that you've been talking about and all the events and things that they've done and the the common theme is that they just want everyone to be really dumb and stupid. Don't don't even look into anything metaphysical, don't look beyond the third dimension, don't look up in the sky, just, you know, be dumb, go go to work and pay your taxes. You know, it seems like that's got to be the, they don't want anyone to expand their consciousness.
4: No, and I think when, when people do do, or who, who want to do that, that's when it goes from being sort of vague to more menacing threats you know, that kind of thing and and sort of just amplifying even more the intimidation and the sort of the fear factor of making people paranoid and, and that's probably the one thing that the men in black are extremely good at doing more than anything else is making people paranoid, you know, I mean which it would. You know, if you're you're getting that you've had a visit and then in the weeks and months afterwards you start getting hang up phone calls, weird calls you find your mail, you know, has been torn open and resealed with tape. And, you know, this happens across two or three days a week and the post office can't explain it. And, uh, you know, you go out and follow by a black car. And I think the men in black direction, whatever they are, they they know how to sort of turn on that paranoia or push that paranoia button, you know. and um, And it's understandable that people like Albert Bender, I mentioned in Bridgeport, Connecticut, I mean, his life was sort of plunged into chaos and stress for months because he became so paranoid by these men in black that it literally made him sick, both psychologically, you know, he developed paranoia and obsessive-compulsive disorder, and he began, you know, uh, also physical um, ailments as well, like ulcers and and stomach problems, and, um, and he felt that, essentially been sort of hexed almost like a malevolent hex had been fired at him for want of a better term. And uh, like a curse had been placed on him. And it was only when he sort of backed away that it all stopped, but he didn't really want to back away. And that was, I think that was the whole point. He sort of became a victim of the, of the intimidation and the the sort of psychic attacks and everything else that was going on.
1: Well, um, at uh, at our our last uh, gathering our, our crystal quest gathering um was just last week um Lavendar read the whole chapter in in your book that you had okay. um from interviewing her and and I it makes me wonder um because that was that was some time ago um and and Lavendar you can you can chime in if you like. Um is that the only encounter it, it, it seems to me that they'd be on her all the time. But it, was that an isolated incident, and you've never had anything else like that, Lavender?
3: No, that was the only time I ever encountered the Men in Black. Was at the foot of my bed um, at, at that hospital. Yeah, that was the only time I that I have memory of it. Let's put it that way.
4: <laughs> well, that <laughs> they that may have come actually- and erased me you're actually sort of in good company because most people actually only do get one MIB visit, but then they have sort of multiple examples of, like the phone interference and the mail interference and people photographing the house, all those kind of things. But there are actually very few people who've been visited more than once. Um, And again, maybe that's because it's much more, from their perspective, it may be more difficult to get away with keep turning up at the same house time and time again even they might be limited into how many times they could do that without being caught but mail interference and particularly telephone interference would be far more easy to achieve and and not get caught so i think that probably explains why the the personal visits usually only occur once because even they have you know to a degree certain limitations and you know the the other ways where it's sort of done more remotely there's less chance of being caught out, I think.
3: The thing about them is they didn't tell me to shut up. In fact, they were asking me questions,
4: and mm-hmm. I had had
3: sodium pentothal uh, placed in my body, so I was just like a jabberwocky, telling them everything they wanted to know. <laughs> but well, they didn't—they didn't intimidate me or make me paranoid or anything like that. They—they they just
4: asked me lots of questions. Well, it's interesting, you know, because, um, again, some of it may come down to the fact that at the time, you know, you'd been pla with these, you know, with the drugs you're on, that you're in like an altered state, and that could potentially make you more vulnerable to spilling the beans, so to speak. You know, they uh, you you could be asked any number of questions. You'd probably just reel out the answers, and as I said, that's what the MIB are very good at doing, is putting people into altered states and then essentially getting them to do what they want them to do or say what they want them to say or not say what they don't want them to say, you know? So, um, I think possibly that altered state, um, you know, is an important factor. There's a, one chapter I have, um, in the book, um, about a guy who was also sort of in an altered state of mind when he had his experience and, um, and suddenly the men in black turned up and, um, you know I, I think there's something to the idea that when our mind is in an altered state possibly it opens doors to other sort of realms dimensions and allows some of these things that may inhabit them like the men in black to come through you know we know it's not a case of us imagining it it's literally you know being able to see something perceive something that in your normal state of mind we don't see you know in the same way we don't see x-rays or we don't see ultraviolet rays but they're all around us you know and maybe that's like with the men in black. You have to be in a certain frame of mind, perhaps, or an altered frame of mind to even encounter them.
3: I think when no. I opened my mouth it, to the doctor, when I said, please don't give me sodium pentothal, and he said, why? And I said, because I'm a UFO contactee, and it'll kill me. I think that's what flagged everybody. <laughs> <laughs> when I said that, that's, and then when I woke up from the operation, they were standing at my
4: bed. Hmm. Yeah three of them mm. well that's interesting because albert bender talked a lot about um they had the men in black would sort of literally materialize at the foot of his bed and his his actual book that he wrote was called flying saucers and the three men because they all always turned up in groups of three and this goes back to the early 50s when albert bender's experiences were happening and um you know they he was always in an altered state when when his three men in black turned up for example if you, read, excuse me, if you read his book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, he talks about how he always knew when they were going to appear because he would start to feel dizzy and lightheaded. And there would be this sort of sulfurous brimstone kind of smell would overwhelm the room, and he would have to lay down on his bed. And he would feel dizzy and sort of a sense of vertigo, even though he was lying down. And then suddenly these three shadowy MIB would appear, and then they would start the threats. Um, but he was in such an altered state, he could barely get off the bed. You know, it was as if he'd been drugged. Yeah.
1: Oh. Well, um, I know we're just about out of time here, but I'm having the thought that um, Lavender, I know you call them the galactic secret service. Do you think that, that, um, that Starseeds could... Get you know protection from that kind. If they've seen a UFO, just you know call the Galactic Secret Service and just like you know um, keep me keep me insulated from this.
3: Yeah, well you know once a person takes their power and once a person knows that they are their protection, they can they can um, they can do it themselves. They can you know put that protection field up to where uh, they can keep that from happening. They don't need anyone to come and protect them. They can activate themselves. I'm trying to teach a lot of star seeds to take their power, and to know that they are their protection. That's what we're all about: is getting strong and courageous in this work.
1: Well, that's a wonderful point, and I do I do want everyone to um, to take that to heart um, because this this is kind of a you know can be a, a disturbing to to know that this is going on, but. Um, it's not a reason to to be you know, be afraid of being afraid, you know. So yes, Starseeds, you take your power and you are your own protection.
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the things that often, you know, makes the, the person who's seen the men in black end up as a victim because they sort of fall under this spell and they're sort of controlled and manipulated by the fear factor. What because what's interesting about that scenario is that when people see the men in black and sometimes they're able to break this spell when they're in the house then the witnesses sort of stand up and say get out the house you know it's if they, like i said they've literally broken the spell that they're under that when that happens the men in black don't even attempt to fight back or try and you know sort of reinstate the situation where they're in charge they just leave the house immediately they sort of sometimes stumble they sort of stutter and get confused but the one thing they always do is they leave as quickly as possible. They don't, as you might imagine, you know, sort of slam the person against the wall and threaten them. When the when the spell's broken, it's as if they know that the person's no longer under their power, and that it's them who are under, you know, threat. And, and so they suddenly leave. So you know, if you can overcome that fear factor when dealing with the men in black, I think that actually counts for a lot. Yeah. Well,
1: that's good. I want to. Just kinda of wanna end it on a on a uh a positive note because we do have personal power and we do have free will. And yeah. you know, sometimes you just you know, you just say no, get out and uh and don't answer the phone late at night.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Let it go to answer the phone, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: well I mean caller I D, um <laughs> you don't have to answer the phone. So Nick, it's just been a pleasure having you with us and um I know that everyone is just going to love meeting you in Arkansas. So we'll look forward to that and uh, remember if you if you want to to um to sign up for Pleiadian lineup weekend, um there are some spots left, but you need to write uh to Tammy at starseedhotline.com and she'll give you more information and there's a registration and details that you'll need to know, so you just um um Email Tammy at starseedhotline.com, and also um, to check out more of Nick's books, you can go to his website, which is Nick Redfern Fortean. That's Nick N I C K Redfern R E D F E R N Fortean F O R T E A N dot blogspot dot com. Uh, how many books have you got? Like thirty books now, Nick.
4: Yeah, about 32, 33, and I've got a few more coming out next year, so uh, you know, there'll be a few more ones uh, out shortly.
1: Yeah, well, we will look forward to anything that you do because it's fascinating, it is well investigated, it is well researched, and you present um, very um, dispassionately. You know, you, you're not trying to prove a theory you're just presenting the information and, and connecting the dots. So we love the way you write. And please, everyone, go to Nick's website because he has a lot of a lot of wonderful books um, of interest to starseeds.
4: Yeah, and if you go to the blog, you can see a new photograph of me uh, with a 14-foot Burmese python wrapped around my shoulders. So. <laughs> I saw that.
1: I'm wondering, like, is that thing real?
4: Oh, my oh, gosh. Yeah, that was, yeah, he weighed a ton. He was... Uh, when he was actually trying to get position himself on on my shoulders, you know, he they sort of use the leverage of your body to push yourself up and so for leverage they sort of squeeze their muscles around you so they can push the higher parts of the body up and when he you know, when he squeezed those muscles you could I could easily see how, you know, if they wanted to sort of take you out they could, you know, and it would be sort of a hell of a fight to get free. <laughs>
1: yeah. So was that a, was this a tame snake?
4: Well yeah I mean it was it was a, it wasn't like in a zoo or anything like that it was owned by you know a, you know a, a man himself he owned it but I think you know very often in these situations when snakes are sort of you know shown on public display and you can handle them typically what happens is that the owners make sure they're well fed beforehand because you know there's there's nothing worse than a hungry snake but a well fed snake is actually quite docile you know it's kind of like a lion lions don't just attack in the wild for the sake of it they only hunt when they're hungry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, if they've just finished a meal and a and a gazelle wanders past, they very rarely attack it because they're you know they don't need to, and that's kind of like snakes when they're full; they're they're sort of far easier to handle, which is good news.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was like, "Whoa, look at that!" <laughs> so you can go go to Nick's website and see him with his. Uh, with his snake necklace, <laughs> yeah, snake down necklace. around your body. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for joining us, Nick. It's always a pleasure to have you with us, and Thanks. we will look forward to um, meeting you actually physically in person. Um, yeah,
4: I'll
1: be Canadian lineup, yeah, just a couple of weeks away.
4: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
1: So um, I want to thank uh, Vanya and Fiona as well for hosting the switchboard and taking care of us this evening, and Anastasia for the Starseed News, and from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we wish you a wonderful new week. Have a happy and safe Halloween. And uh, Nick Redfern, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.
4: Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Good night, everybody.